You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. Welcome back to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast. In this episode and indeed next week's episode, we're going to look at the best of 2023. So published roughly 52 episodes this year, um, week in, week out on the podcast. And what I wanted to do is just give you all a semblance of some of the most downloaded episodes and engagement from the year. So we're going to look at five episodes this uh, this episode and indeed then five of the most downloaded episodes next episode is the is almost the best of 2023 from an engagement and download perspective. So just a little bit of an update on the podcast. Uh, it's currently receiving 200,000 downloads, which is fantastic. Uh, it's really encouraging to see that people are engaging with the podcast, but also they are getting uh, value from the podcast and asking questions as well. So uh, it's great to get engagement, to get questions, to get emails uh, from yourselves on different topics and indeed hopefully provide some of the answers and also steer the conversation. So steer the future content uh, according to feedback from, from yourself. So please do keep feedback coming. Uh, at the bottom of this week's episode and indeed next week's episode, I'm going to put my email address on there so you can reach out to my hotmail address and indeed uh, just email with me with comments indeed and also with um, topics that you'd like to see for 2024. So this week we'll look at five different episodes, just the highlights from those episodes, uh, just edits which I've spliced together um, to give you a real semblance of some of the wisdom from the guests, some of the insights and indeed their reflections on different aspects of practice which is extremely valuable from their Um, speciality but also their experiences because I think experience counts for a lot so uh, please do enjoy these five episodes this week and indeed five episodes next week before we kick off with the episode I just wanted to update you with some housekeeping that of the fact we're going to reboot the restore podcast Um, I've got 75 episodes on the restore podcast Uh, I stopped producing it in March of last year just due to workload but we're going to reboot that so we're going to reboot the thumbnail so the uh, the visuals um, and then we're also going to reboot the guest selection Um, it's going to be wider remit than just mental health but it's going to be engaging non-clinical podcasts so engaging non-clinical conversations uh, with a wide selection of guests hopefully extremely engaging and just opens up uh, the opportunity to to reach a wider audience as well so please do look out for those i'll screen one or two of them uh, on the pressbook care podcast when they go live but we're going to reboot that in 2024 I'm also going to reboot uh, just the visuals, so the thumbnails um, that you see on the podcast for the Prisbot Care podcast and the Restore podcast. So it'll be um, improved visuals. And also we're going to go live with a new website in 2024. So plenty of work, plenty of activity uh, this next year. Um, so please do keep the engagement please do feel free to subscribe to the podcast also tell your friends about the podcast Uh, it's fantastic to see the podcast on a number of reading lists and uh, for universities and and exactly that's exactly where I wanted it to be so I I wanted uh, there to be a real semblance of subject matter experts uh, speaking on topics which would really inform practice both in practice but also for people going to university and indeed at the start of their career so it's fantastic to see that the podcast is sort of creeping into different various aspects of education as as well so please do enjoy these five episodes. We're going to kick off and start with um, five episodes at the start of the year. 
So we're going to look at the first episode I uh, included was from Deb Swan. So this was her UK ISAR, so UK International Search and Rescue Deployment to Turkey. And where she speaks quite candidly um, on her experience in Turkey, uh, some amazing insights um, and risks that she that she tempered and dealt with. Debs is an ACP, so Advanced Clinical Practitioner, and indeed works and has worked in ISAR for a number of deployments now. But this one, she really speaks quite candidly on her experiences in Turkey and some experiences that fundamentally moved her as a person as well. So pleased to enjoy this first segment. It was the um, it's was is the worst um, natural disaster in modern history in. The Northern Hemisphere. It um, it has so far, uh, I think, fifty seven thousand plus people have been killed as a result of it across Turkey and Syria. I believe there's over one hundred twenty thousand people injured. Where we were deployed in Hatay province to Antakya city, which uh, was previously known as Antioch, so it's an ancient city, birth of civilization. Eighty percent of that city has been raised. So a, a yeah a, a devastating, unusual earthquake. So you kind of expect in you expect that it's going to be dangerous. What you do and you mentally prepare. And I don't know about you. I, I mentally prepare for lots of things. So I do. I, I also um, uh, do fem with a care team in Birmingham. And you know you kind of from your experience as a, as a CCP. You do, I, I don't know if you did this. I do mental modeling and I think a lot of people do mental modeling. And it, in a way, it helped me, uh, you know, for certain situations and predi- potentially predictable situations. And you think you can mental do some mental modeling for a, an earthquake. <laughs> yeah, you can up to a point. But the actual, like you said, the visceral feelings, you can't prepare for that. I was in a collapsed structure with a guy who had been trapped for three days and he was a rescuer so the first earthquake struck and we believe it was his parents he was trying to rescue and then the second earthquake struck and he then got trapped by uh, you know the floors pancaking and collapsing and he was trapped under his parents who he was trying to rescue and when we got to them his parents were dead and holding hands and that in itself was you know when I saw that when I crawled into that space that was you know that it felt like it was a lifetime I was just taken aback by it and the um, USAR tech the firefighter John Aitchison who I was working with snapped me out of that and was like come on I need you over here for this guy And, and that's what I needed so that in itself I was kind of already on the back foot and I think we had been in there in the confined space maybe 45 minutes, maybe an hour. I don't know the time that we were in there. And there was a huge aftershock. It was a 3.8, I found out later. So 3.8 magnitude aftershock. And it shook the building and things were falling down around us. And as soon as I felt the the, the beginnings of the rumble of it, our crew leader outside had blown the whistle three times, three short, sharp, blows on the whistle and that is you you get out now doesn't matter what you're doing you get out now and in that moment I thought oh, if this building collapses that's we're dead John and I are we'll, we'll be dead and it felt like the building was collapsing 
And I remember thinking it was probably a millisecond's worth of thought, but it felt like a lifetime. I thought, oh, I wonder what it feels like. I wonder if it'll hurt. And and that was it. It was a really, it was such a strange feeling and almost the feeling of, well, I can't do anything about it. An acceptance, like ju- just in a millisecond, that thought, a really odd experience, really, really strange. We were in a building um, with two people that were trapped in a hotel and this was day four going into day five. And you can see this rescue on uh, social media. Um, if you look at Malcolm Russell's Twitter account, it, it's on there. That's it, it was on the news. It was a fairly significant rescue. We were in there. Uh, we were. I was helping with digging and going into the confined space and, and digging out the rubble to, to get to them. I was coming out because it was our turn to, to swap teams for, for doing that. And just as I was coming out of the hotel, or we were coming out of the hotel, the atmosphere around Antaku just felt like the atmosphere had changed. It was heavy. And we could hear people, hundreds of people screaming, and we could see hundreds of people running towards us. We thought, oh, what was going on? And then we saw the police in their vehicles speeding down the street and slowing down and telling us to run. And then we saw the military doing the same. And when you see the military running, <laughs> you just think, okay, it's probably time to go. Don't ask questions, just go. And then one person stopped and said, the dam has burst, the dam has burst. So again, our crew leader, Stevie, again, three sharp blows on the whistle, get everyone out. And I thought it's because we were five, 10 kilometers from the Syrian border. And my first thought was, have Daesh taken an opportunity to take a, a part of, of the land that is uh, apparently contested? Has uh, some looting gone wrong and someone's marauding with a gun? Has there been another earthquake that I didn't feel and buildings are collapsing that I hadn't quite noticed? And it was just all of these thoughts again. And everyone just said, run to high ground. <laughs> so we ran downhill towards the river <laughs> and then took a right turn to go uh, uphill over rubble to find a building that was still standing to then get to the top of that building. And you, it was odd because there was a collective, you could feel the fear, the, the fear of hundreds of people it was palpable. And again, it is a situation that I've never been in before. And I thought, if I trip over now, that's me done. And then I thought, if I don't trip over and the water comes, that's also me done. And it was that same feeling of, I wonder if it were, I wonder how long it will take. Just that curiosity of what it would, what, what death would feel like. But I was impressed with myself that I was able to run in full... PPE in a respirator, wearing chainsaw boots and keeping up with firefighters who are like twice the size of me and a hundred times fitter than me <laughs> running uphill from a fake dam burst. And it, it turned out that it was, we'd heard that it was um, a rumour spread for some reason to try and get international teams out of the city, but we never, we never quite found out why. But it did make the news, obviously, in Turkey. And, and again, it was as a team... We had a collective experience and we understand it as a team and we've spoken about it and we've laughed about it and laughed at ourselves about it, particularly running downhill towards the river. 
but yeah and that was that was collective and it was a group experience and again really odd odd feeling next up is claire park claire was and is a uh, consultant in emergency prospect medicine and she's also the chief investigator on a uk nationally funded research grant looking into the evidence for improving patient outcomes in hot zone major incident working so this episode got a fantastic amount of engagement across the year and in the conversation we look at what constitutes a major incident and why they needed to be changed or why the 10 second uh, triage algorithm needed to occur and also the empirical evidence um, for the change but also looking at adoption uh, across the UK and internationally as well so please do enjoy. Part of the reason for actually developing this is because it, it felt like it was originally for non-healthcare providers where we started um, and we wanted something that would work for everybody because really that first 10 minutes or first few minutes is, is often not healthcare professionals. Um, but even for healthcare professionals, it feels that the practicalities of the triage tools that have commonly been used. And actually, when you look, there's probably, I think on a literature review we did at the beginning of this, there's about 19 different published primary triage tools, um, all of which have a slightly different variation on a theme. Most, in fact, all of which require you to measure some sort of physiology. Um, most of them need you to remember a particular uh, framework of physiology. So they want you to remember a range of respiratory rate, a range of heart rate or a capillary refill time. Uh, and measure it um, and then work out which category people go into. And I don't know about you, but I don't think I ever measure, actually measure a respiratory rate. I mean, I look at a patient, and I go, are they breathing fast or slow? Are they working hard or not? And to be honest, the same for the pulse rate. Is it but is it bounding? Is it weak? Is it there? But in a super sick patient, it's really hard to feel that pulse rate. And that's in someone who does it all of the time. So when you walk into a room where there's multiple casualties and you're sort of hit by that wall of everything going on, and then you've got to focus on counting. One of the things we've seen in a lot of these, a lot of training scenarios and actually for real is that people don't, they really struggle to do that counting and it takes all of their bandwidth. Um, and actually, if we look back at the tools that have been used, a lot of the testing has been not done, actually people feeling for pulses and, and, and counting respiratory rates, but it's been done on cards that tell you what the respiratory rate and the pulse rate are. And even then, if it's given you for 10 seconds, you work out what it is in a minute and your head's gone. So in reality, how much those tools are actually used and are useful is the other thing. So probably leading on to some of your other questions but if we look at the retrospective data analysis of them um those those retrospective studies are done on first available observations which are i think very rarely if ever the actual observation at the point where those casualties are injured because no one's writing those down so we're extrapolating something that isn't actually what happened there's, I think there's only actually three tools. Certainly, I haven't done the search in the last year or so, but when we did the search when we started um, a year or so ago, um, we redid it. Um, most of the studies uh, are based on retrospective data studies or they're based on uh, testing within a classroom type environment where people are given the observations and the respiratory rate and heart rate. They're not in the scenario actually measuring them. Um, there's only three tools that have actually been used and recorded to have been used in reality for a real major incident. Like the, the, There's 13 retrospective database um, reviews of their use. Um, and I think there's no doubt that having a tool is better than having nothing. And that's kind of where we started with this because the 
police officers were expected to prioritise casualties with no tool, no ability, because they weren't taught formal triage, which made things much worse for them. So I think I, I think I would absolutely agree with any of the literature that says having a triage tool is better than nothing. And I think that's almost what we're comparing, because we're not comparing something that could be better. We're comparing just what we had. So um, and I think we're not comparing it against what actually happens. So if you look at the physiology of people, you know, what, my heart rate and respiratory rate wouldn't be normal when if someone who I love or who I care about has just been shot at or killed or run over or injured um, or I was fearing for my own life. And I don't think that's ever recorded in that early bit. You know, we're, we're retrospectively looking at observations, at first observations at hospital, like the TARN database has looked at, um, or even first ambulance observations, but hardly anybody's going to actually record that. So I think what we're seeing is that definitely a system needs to be there. Um, and the literature tells us that that does make a difference. But the practicalities and the crew resource management aspects of, of, of maintaining your bandwidth in a situation that's high threat, of physically being able to do it and have the situational awareness to realise when something different needs to be done for the person next to you and not get stuck on one patient and move on. All of those kind of crew resource management aspects really build into it a tool that needs to be practical in real life as opposed to based on academic databases. So I think there's the two things that we know are, are the killers in the first, you know, we don't know exactly the time frame, and that's one of the things that our, our NHR project is trying to clarify a little bit closer. But I think we know enough from the literature in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and other places that the things that kill people in the first 10 to 15 minutes are airway obstruction uh, and external bleeding that can be controlled. So what was described as catastrophic bleeding. Um, and really, if you did nothing else, other than have a way of very quickly assessing a patient for the need for those two interventions and then moved on to the next patient rather than getting stuck in a full sort of full assessment and doing everything you know how to do for one casualty, then it feels like a false a force multiplier to save lives where you've got people moving on. Um, a lot of people are taught to do CPR on someone who's in cardiac arrest, but almost you can argue that by that point, there's more things that are more beneficial than being stuck doing that. So if you can open an airway, make sure it stays open, put them in a recovery position, move on the, to the next person, stop the external bleeding, whether it's junctional bleeding that needs packing or a tourniquet, then doing those things quickly and moving on are the things that can't wait. They can't wait 20 minutes because if someone's bleeding from an external catastrophic hemorrhage and you step over them and carry on with your role, if you're a firearms officer, for instance, by the time the ambulance crew come through, if that's 20, 30, 40 minutes later, it's too late. So we really wanted to focus on those two primary things that most of us who are healthcare professionals, certainly as air ambulances, are never going to be there in time to do anything about unless we happen to find ourselves in the middle of the event. Um, and then the other bit we've brought into this is the penetrating trauma. So the bit that it feels that external hemorrhage doesn't pick up on is the non-compressible internal hemorrhage that really none of us can do anything about at the scene. We can try as air ambulances, we can give blood, we can try to do procedures, but in reality, those casualties need to be on an operating table with a surgeon as quickly as possible. So we really wanted some way of flagging those patients as a priority for evacuation, even over some of the people that have potentially got hemorrhage control already. Absolutely. And I might just jump in there because that intuitive triage that I think we do as senior clinicians is a really important point. This tool we've developed is, is for everybody, but 
actually, I think the aim is that you we now focus on that for the early response. And then really that thing that an algorithm can't replace is that is that blink knowledge of a senior clinician who just looks at someone and is like, they're, they're super sick. I don't need to do anything else. I know they need to go. Or, you know, your five, 10 second primary survey tells you everything by looking at them. You wouldn't expect someone without years of clinical experience to be able to do that. But equally, an algorithm can never replace that years of experience. So I think there's the 10 second triage tool for the most people coming in as the first wave. But as soon as possible, if we can then get senior clinicians, whether that's paramedics or doctors in to really do that intuitive look, then to almost pick out the P1 pluses, as I described them, to after that as the sort of second wave. So actually you've got that, you've you've picked out your P1s, you've picked out the people you're worried about, and then you get the next level of, of triage to look at that. So I think it's worth just making the point that we're not taking away from the importance of having that intuitive triage, but that this tool is really about that early bit when you can't have those people there and you really need a system of framework, something that enables people to speak the same language as well. And maybe I'll come on to that when we talk about how we developed it, but it's really important for us that people have that common language and understanding. So it's almost a force multiplier of everyone working towards the same goal. Next up was John Chatterjee on the Prehospital Airway. John was and is a prehospital consultant uh, with London's Air Ambulance, but he's also a consultant anaesthetist. And he's also got some fantastic insights from a global perspective uh, from his deployments in Ukraine, Ethiopia, Liberia, uh, Sydney, and indeed his time in New Zealand. But fundamentally, his time spent in prehospital care. So we talk in this conversation um, about the challenges of a prehospital airway tips on uh, the stepwise management and knowing where to come in. We'll also look at uh, some of the seminal cases that John has dealt with over the past 10 years. He also talks on uh, sort of a declaration of a plan and indeed findings. Uh, and he also talks about VL and DL uh, as well. But it's a, it's a, it's a wide-ranging, encompassing uh, conversation that I really enjoyed having with John. One of the first myths to break about anesthesia and airway management is that it's hard. Um, now, I understand I'm coming from the standpoint that my entire career is built on giving anesthetics, but if I am honest about it, I only have to go through one hole and then I have a choice of two holes and I need to get it in the right hole. That's airway management done. It's not actually that complicated. And if you look at anesthesia around the world, um, you know, in the UK, at the moment, the vast majority of anaesthetics are given by physician anaesthetists. So you're talking about people with five, six years in medical school, then another seven or eight years postgraduate training to become a consultant in anaesthesia, passing really quite tough exams. And there's lots of reasons why the exams are so tough. But, you know, outside of COVID, I'm not entirely sure how useful it was for every anaesthetist to know exactly how oxygen is delivered to the hospital or vacuum insulated evaporator works. But those are the sort of minutiae details that they know and boiling temperature stuff. But actually, if you look around the world, anesthesia is delivered by a range of practitioners with far fewer years of baseline knowledge. And the reason that that isn't a disaster everywhere else is because actually it's not that difficult. And there's a um, an often used um, sort of comparison in anesthesia that that irritates some, and I apologise if this is if you are one of those people, about flying and aviation and anaesthesia. And it's one of the sort of two 
closest sort of comparisons in medicine in the world. And anesthesia is compared to flying a, uh, a commercial jet. And if you think about that, you are getting into a plane at JFK or Gatwick or Heathrow, and you know where you're flying to, you know the weather, you know the plan, you've got everything there that you can plan 99.9% of the journey. But still, just like a normal general anaesthetic, it might be that you're going through some thunderclouds and storms, you've got all your mitigations, all your planning there. But if something goes wrong, you want the captain with all of that training to be able to rescue the plane in that disaster. And that's hospital general anaesthesia. Pre-hospital anaesthesia is more akin to flying a fighter jet. Now, this will definitely appeal to some pre-hospital practitioners who want to think themselves as, you know, Tom Cruise in Top Gun and Maverick. Sadly, you don't want to be Tom Cruise in this instance. You might want to look like him, but maybe a bit taller, but you, you don't want to be making maverick decisions and going off on your own. If you look at the life of a fighter jet pilot, they spend time training, 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 and training to once in every thousand sorties or less actually going on a live mission. And what they're going on is something with limited information having to react to what they're doing. And that is exactly what the pre-hospital airway is like. We need to train and train for this. But the difficulty is when you finally get there, you don't know exactly what you can expect. You've never met this patient before and you don't know their history and you don't know the team you're working with and you don't know the why, you know, the full history of why they've been injured and everything else. And, you know, one of my colleagues when I was talking about this in hospital said, and pre-hospital, you don't have pillows. And we have pillows in hospital. I, I work mainly with the London Ambulance Service now. Pillows are an absolute premium. But all these things mean that actually when you're doing a pre-hospital anaesthetic, you're doing something much, much more challenging and not because of the holes that you're putting the tubes into, but because of the entire environment around you that just makes it harder. Yeah. I mean, I think you can kind of divide these up into the patient things, the environmental things and the human factor things. The human factors, I think, is the biggest challenge. And I guess we'll get onto that a bit later on about some of the some of the cases and stuff that we, I've been involved in. In terms of the environment, you know, you, you want to try and make it as normal as possible. And the, and the way um, in, a, in, in my hem service in London, where we work very closely as a two person team, I sort of emphasize on the paramedics. What your job is to do as the expert in the pre-hospital environment is to try and make it as most like a hospital as possible for your for your doctor because they're going to be least experienced there and you want to bring all those things in that make it as easy as possible so getting the bed to the right height getting things positioned getting a standardized kit up so everything you start to bring some order into the chaos and lighting and all these other things sort of help to make that environment better but there are things you just can't control but you know but you can ask for sound to be reduced and all that and if you think about that kind of thing when you play into the human factors of asking you to do something relatively simple when you're not tired and you're not under stress versus doing the same thing when you are tired and under stress, it's that same thing of all these distractions make it harder. Just like I can walk through the door of my flat every day without any problems and I can leave the flat every day without any problems. But for example, this morning, I walked out and I forgot my keys because I was tired. I was stressed from other things going on. I didn't want to go to the, um, the, the things I had to do today. And all these things, they just distract you. And things that you would never think of 
distract you. And, that, and that's the environment there. In terms of the patients, they're rubbish. You know, the patients just don't play ball. In hospital, if my patient's terrible in a heap of a patient, what I do is I find the best possible excuse to punt them onto another day or get one of my colleagues to do them. You just can't do that because you're it pre-hospitally. And you will you will end up with the, the difficult airway, obese, vomiting patient in the worst condition. And it's just you don't you don't have the option of delaying calling help and you are that one thing there. And where I think the the role of the two person team is really critical here is supporting each other in trying to make that patient and look forward to those things. And so what I say to the paramedics who often work as the assistants in the London system is you're sitting a few degrees off from the patient, you've got a much better side view of that patient. Look at them. Look at what a patient should look like on a trolley in an, in an anaesthetic room in an ideal intubating condition. Yes, the environment, if they've got a traumatic injury, you might have to put them you know, in, in, uh, in line stabilisation. You might not be able to. But even in inline stabilization, you don't want the neck, you know, back at, uh, you know, at 30 degrees negative. You want it at a neutral position. So you can do things to mitigate that. You don't want someone who's, you know, who's positioned so poorly that their that their sternum is, is as far up as their chin. You want to have that kind of angulation. And, and these things, you can teach people to look at specific points and specific angles and stuff. But the human eye, the mark one eyeball, is brilliant at just saying that looks right, that doesn't look right. And so you could almost just do flashcards to teach people like this is what a patient should look like from the side. This is not what someone should look like from the side. And simple things like that. And then to, when it comes to the CRM, I, our, you know, we put people through the ringer in the uh, in the courses, uh, in the helicopter crew courses before they start with us, and obviously on the job as well. And I remember seeing a beautiful piece of um, critical crisis resource management when we gave a normal mannequin to a pair of um, practitioners, a senior uh, hospital doctor and a senior paramedic who were both very experienced, and you put their peers around them watching them do this moulage. The senior doctor went in and said, I, I can't see anything. And in his mind, he's thinking it's a trick. This is a difficult airway. And it's not. It's a completely normal mannequin. And his, his co-practitioner, the paramedic, puts his arm on his shoulder and goes, it's all right. Just take your time. Tell me what you see. Tell me what we can do to improve it and try these tricks. And then when he got the view, the, the paramedic who had sort of gotten through this stress then tries to put the circuit together and literally you see a filter a, a catheter mount um you know a, a, a co2 line all just fly up in the air in sort of in, in unison it's just like a beautiful shower but but then you just see this guy's face look absolutely crestful but he screwed this up and you know at this point you know the the um the the doctor goes it's okay just just get the, the filter line, get this, the catheter mount, get this, put them together. It's no problem. The sats are okay. And this sort of yin and yang of reassuring one another of the different parts of the procedure, that's what makes it really work. But equally, those are the points where it can really fall apart. So 
I, I always find that the more experience and more knowledge that I garner, the more options that I have. It, it seems very simple. I think the less I know, the simpler the answer has always seemed. Um, and I think that's that's natural in life. You know, you ask a you ask a teenager what car you should get. They go, well, obviously this one. I don't know why you've been considering it, mate. You ask someone older, and they go, well, actually, maybe I should be getting the the Volvo rather than the sports car. And, you know, and that's the same with airway management. You you, you do think about it. You get more mature about it. Um, so I think over the years, you 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 sit there and you look at the endpoint of where you're going to. And there are some patients that you anaesthetize that don't fit into those things. And, and I remember a case where a patient was very high GCS um, and was talking to us. But I also knew that this poor chap had attempted to kill themselves and they were having a really, really bad day. And the nature of their injuries meant that when they went to hospital, there would be 10, 20 people in recess. They would follow them through to theatres. All these things would progress because of the nature of their injury. Um, and that meant that for this patient, it was going to be the worst day of their life multiplied by 100 because you've reached a decision that you want to end your life and you've, you've done something about it and it hasn't worked. And now you're going to be made a spectacle of you're going to end up in the operating theatre anyway. It, granted, it doesn't need to be in 30 minutes. It might be in an hour or two hours' time. And you're going to do all these other things. But actually, thinking about that, thinking about what you would want for your loved one, and then talking to that patient what he would want and making a decision to do that pre-hospital anaesthetic, not necessarily for a super clinical reason, but the other thing, I think that's the maturity that sort of comes in. But it was very interesting that after that particular job, I ended up with a whole range of feedback from, from people outside and inside the ambulance from that was a really compassionate and nice thing to do for that patient for you could have been in hospital mate by then and you should have just gone. Why did you do that? You didn't need to do that. It didn't fit his career category. And, and I think that speaks to the maturity of it. And again, the range of opinions you'll always get, but I'm happy myself to a, admit that sometimes I will cock it up and get it wrong and B, sometimes I will get it right and no more than the other person. Next up was my conversation with Ash Vassaretti on pelvic trauma. I had a fantastic conversation with Ash and it got loads of engagement across the year. And in the conversation, we talked about uh, why pelvic trauma is so critical from, a, from an intervention perspective, but also from a, an initial pre-hospital assessment perspective. We talked about the history and why the history is so important across specialisms. Uh, we also talked about uh, interventional radiology, the lessons learned from practice, and also a seminal case from Ash's perspective. Um, but yeah, a lot, a lot from this conversation. Ash is a consultant with Essex and Hearts for Ambulance, but he's also um, a orthopedic trauma surgeon uh, specialising in upper limb uh, and lower limb and complex pelvic fractures. Please do enjoy. No, so it's interesting. So yes, I have a foot in two separate camps and I see them at different points in their timeline, in their patient journey. And in terms of how often they occur, I it's they occur infrequently on my clinical shifts. So every EHAT uh, and uh, air ambulance clinical shift I do, I'm not necessarily seeing a pelvic fracture. But every day I'm at King's College Hospital, there is at least one pelvic fracture coming in. 
Whether they're hemodynamically stable or hemodynamically unstable is a slightly separate point uh, because that because the severity of pelvic fracture is not always related to hemodynamic instability. We can discuss that later. Uh, but generally, we're seeing a pelvic fracture pretty much every day now. Even if it's not on site, we're getting external referrals. They're increasing in frequency, especially amongst the elderly. I think diagnostics are getting better in all the trauma units, so in the district general hospitals as well, so that referral number's going up. Uh, and actually, the in numbers of intervention are also going up. So just even speaking from my experience at King's, I could I, when I first started at King's as a consultant back in 2018, we were probably fixing around 90 pelvic nastabular fractures a year, which would have been a good number. We're easily hitting 130 a year now without like without breaking that much of a sweat. And, and it can become quite difficult to manage the volume. And so just over the last week, I can already tell you, we've had some pretty severe pelvic and acetabular fractures. So I'll just group those things together. They're not obviously necessarily the same, but those, you, uh, those fractures together. And we've been doing pretty much a, a pelvis or acetabular fracture operation almost every day. So with my uh, pre-hospital pre -hospital hat on, I honestly think that history is the most important thing. You've got to get a really accurate history. If the patient can give it to you, fine. If the patient can't give it to you, you've got to find the bystander that was there at the time. Even if that bystander is in you know, a police car 30 meters away, you've got to find a mechanism that you go and speak to them yourself and just find out exactly what happened. That will tell you for sure. So that's the first thing, great history from a patient themselves or bystander. Then there's obviously a, uh, examination. Examination is really difficult. So look at the physiology and the OBS monitor first, okay? And if you've got with someone with hemodynamic compromise or someone that whose OBS look okay, but they look white as a sheet, yeah, then don't trust the machine, trust your instincts on what the patient looks like. And if you think they're bleeding, and they've got signs of, you know, the hateful eight as people now describing it, any of those signs, then just go for it and examine and look for resting position of the limbs, any of those windswept positions we spoke about, the kind of frog leg position. Have a look for lacerations or signs of bruising or any kind of damage around the pelvis. I've seldom ever seen anyone who hasn't had a pelvic injury with an overlying laceration. Yeah. So anyone I've ever seen pre-hospitally or in-hospitally that has any kind of laceration over the pelvis is has an underlying pelvic fracture. I've never seen the two exist without, you know, apart from stabbings, obviously, but for blunt force trauma, I've never seen the two exist without each other. The next thing is, yeah, you can palpate the anterior superior spine. Obviously, you don't spring anything, but you can try moving a little bit, feeling for any crepitus or anything like that. Again, it's horrendously difficult, can be very inaccurate to do. If you can, I definitely would try and feel the pubic symphysis, which is much lower than people think, and just try and feel it. And sometimes in those peri-arrest patients, uh, where obviously you won't be getting a painful response, but you're able to feel, you can actually feel a gap when it's a big open book. Um, and certainly in surgery, prior to surgery, when before we make an incision, we definitely feel it out, and we can de you can definitely find a gap that's you know at least two three fingers wide, so it's it's easily palpable. Um, and then beyond then, try and find other factors. So you know if you see the bike there, look at the petrol tank. Is there a dent in it? See what else is going on. If there's any other um, history that you can get as to what happened, then all of that, and then 
take into account issues around alcohol intake if that's a if that's the story if there's any signs of head injury and just remember that all of those factors should now lower your threshold for a pelvic fracture uh, and if people have got injuries to their abdomen and their legs they'd be lucky if the pelvis somehow was spared one of the things i'd want to say definitely for our country is that i think pre-hospital care has evolved and is you know is operating at an incredibly high level and i'm not talking about hems teams i'm talking about paramedics emts who are just working and like all good things that work well they're doing the basics really well okay because there's literally no point in me working in hospital like i was last night or doing yesterday when i did have a pelvic fracture to do there's literally no point in me being there if the if the great work is not done in the field and the great work is being done in the field so i really want to applaud all those uh, people who are doing the strong work out in the field to bring us really well resuscitated patients and i think that's actually helping us to why we're understanding mechanism of injury more seeing new uh, injury patterns appreciating these neuro injury patterns and our understanding of pelvic injuries for all of us is just getting better i think i'm seeing a lot of great things being done so patients having a great history so i i often read even if i don't see them in ed or that day if i pick up patients a few days later i'll read through the pre-hospital care record myself because i know that there's really good history in there as to what happened because actually i need that history so that when it comes to the operating bit of the management, because I, I, it helps me reverse the application of the injury force in order to restore the anatomy of the pelvis. So fundamentally, I really need to know how they got injured because I can use devices to reverse all of that to make the pelvis look like it was meant to look and then go on and fix it. People are not giving massive infusions of crystalloid. That's great. People are using TXA. I've yet to see people coming in without binders. Most of them, I, I can't really think off the top of my head any case, I'm sure there are, but I can't really think of any who are fundamentally have a pelvic fracture that don't already have a binder on. And then when the, and then obviously with the HEMS teams bringing them in, they're doing the appropriate advanced pre-hospital interventions of either uh, rapid sequence induction for clinical care management, transfusion, packing wounds etc identifying other associated injuries etc and then all of the pre-hospital care teams ambulance ground ambulance and air ambulances are informing the hospital in advance of a code red coming in as a massive transfusion patient and then in the hospital teams again tra trauma care has really become really outstanding i think in mtcs and in trauma units really well-led teams doing the basics right so i've not got a massive there's no thing where I'm seeing a lot of things missed. I'm seeing a lot of things managed generally really well. Um, there's a little nuance here and there where people, as I said to you, some people are worried about the binders and might try to play with the binders and we get these issues very rarely. But I, but I would counsel people to really not mess with the binders in someone who's hemodynamically unstable for 24 hours. Yeah, unless you've got a CT telling you categorically there's no pelvic fracture, no pelvic injury, no pelvic hematoma, then sure, in those patients, you probably don't need it. But anything on CT that's suspicious of a pelvic fracture, just don't mess with the binder in someone who's unstable. And then what we're trying to do in the orthopedic uh, intervention side is we're trying to get these patients, ideally, 
in terms of our current own standards of care, we're trying to get their definitive fixation done within three days, okay? Because we know they do better in terms of less hospital length of stay, less intensive care length of stay, less respiratory complications, easier nursing care if we do all that sooner rather than later. And in some instances, we're trying to get it done within 36 hours because actually we know that that actually critically can make the difference. So finally, we had a conversation with Neil Banderi uh, on high fidelity training. And this is the final conversation of this episode it got fantastic engagement across the podcast Um, and in the conversation we really looked at the multifactorial benefit of just integrating handover simulation uh, the succinct and universal nature of a a good brief a brief and debrief so succinct um, universal debriefs but also just making sure that that, the candidates are properly briefed uh, every time we talk about stress inoculation skill acquisition and indeed communication under pressure and how important it is to train uh, under pressure for a succinct communication. So Neil is head of education for MedStar Hems Retrieval Service in Adelaide and again he gave a fantastic talk uh, at the trauma conference last year and uh, kindly agreed to come on the podcast. So we, we really do dissect uh, high fidelity training. I learned a lot from the conversation and here is the key highlights from the conversation. Being able to simulate real life um, scenarios and stresses um, is really powerful, um, I, I, and I, it's been a learning curve. So initially, you know, I did it when I started trying to train individuals on um, how I was taught in, in in through simulation, and and looking back, I was put under a lot of pressure and was maxing out, and, and it just I just imploded. Right, I wasn't very good at it, and it just wasn't particularly beneficial in hindsight and so when I design the scenarios um, it's more looking at the non-technical aspects primarily Um, and another arm is um, to look at the if we're looking at a skill set it's to drill the skill in a in a safe environment in a skill station and then once the clinicians are comfortable with that bring it into the simulation environment and add in incremental pressures so they don't get too maxed out but there's enough learning there for them and it's a delicate it's a delicate balance i think it's unproductive really from a personal point of view to just completely overwhelm the clinician in the simulation where they just don't get anything out of it um so that's that's the fine line i'm kind of trying to tread where, where it started when i took on the role uh, a couple of years ago head of training um the foundations was pretty solid from my predecessors. Um, they'd set up this wonderful training system. Um, and I thought, well, how can I move this forward? Uh, and so what I got is I've got some external people to come in and run, watch how we run our kind of orientation program for the new um, doctors and nurses and paramedics. And it was looking at how primarily I said, look, can you just look at how we run the sims and what you think? Um, and these were people from various backgrounds within pre hospital care, um, military primarily. Uh, and what was really interesting to say is like, you've got all these facilitators running multiple SIMs, um, but they're not, well, you're not briefing the candidates properly in a set format. So that's one aspect. Um, the other aspect is when you're debriefing, you're all debriefing in a different way. And so the learner is either getting overwhelmed with the amount of 
knowledge and, and, and feedback points that are coming across. And so they've only, then they're going to the next sim and just feeling more confused. So what we did is I sat down with the team and I said, right, we're going to come up with a, uh, a briefing template and a debriefing template that we're all going to use um, for each sim. So then the learners are having a consistent um, feedback, uh, consistently being fed back in, in, in the same way. So what we used, um, the briefing was the, the kind of the SMEAC, the situation, mission, execution, admin kind of um, communication style. So this is the briefing template we're going to use. And the debriefing is, um, it was kind of a, a mixture of various um, sources. Um, so we look at a brief synopsis. We've only got like say five to eight minutes after a sim to debrief. So um, we look at a brief synopsis and we get the learner to say what was positive aspects and things they'll do differently. And the facilitator is really there if the learner is getting stuck and they can look at time points um, during that uh, during that debrief. Um, so, for example, one of the things we, we look at would be, all right, look, at that critical intervention, if they're getting stuck, you did this. All right. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. So do you want to expand on that? And then we'll kind of um, summarize. And the last thing is we ask them three things. So, you know, what would you stop doing? What would you keep on doing? And what would you start doing? So keep it very simple. Um, and then the final thing that I learned on the feedback was um, we started recording not every SIM because we can record every SIM. We've got the ability to record every SIM. But it takes a long time to then be able to go through it and go through it with a trainee. And that's just not practical. Uh, in, in my line of work. So what we decided to do was at the end of the orientation two-week block, our trainees go through their final scenario, um, which is more usually kind of high complex, like clinically quite complex in a complex environment. And we slowly build up the sims from an easy um, uh, clinical aspect and an easy environment. And we go through up to a clinically challenging and environmentally challenging. Um, and we've, and I've, just on a pretty simple on a GoPro, we'll film them. They're aware we're filming them. Um, and then about two weeks after, two, three weeks after, when they start their kind of rotation with us, I'll get them into the office and we'll just go through it. We'll go through the video. Um, I've gone through it and I'll highlight at certain aspects. But what's really powerful is getting them to say their learning points. So I'll just often be quiet and they'll run through. It's like, oh, I noticed did that, that's what I do. I didn't really pick up on that. That's how my mannerisms are. In fact, if I'd moved the patient a, a meter back towards the ambulance, it would have saved a lot of back and forth, you know, when we're doing the RSI checklist and stuff. So that's been really powerful. And then I asked them, would you mind if we got all the registrars in your cohort to come and watch this? And they said, and invariably they'll say, yeah, sure. And then you've got that hive mindset of they're all learning together. And they're all happy to do that. So that's something we've changed um, in the recent years. That's been we've got really kind of good feedback on that on that process. Yeah, and look, and, it, and again, it goes down to having that kind of um, incremental stresses being applied. Um, I, I, I've got to be honest. More often than not, when particularly if someone hasn't done pre-hospital care before and they're coming to us, um, a, a lot of it is self-generated from the doctor. 
you know, that, that, um, and they'll feel themselves getting more stressed. And you can see that when you're watching them, that you don't need to inject a huge amount to really test them. They're already putting pressure on themselves. Um, and a task that would, they would easily complete in a hospital setting, for example, inserting an eye gel into someone who's um, arrested, um, merely just put them in a, in a helicopter um, with a helmet and a switlick on strapped in, or, or automatically they're stressed out, especially if they haven't been put in that situation before. Right? Um, we use um, staff as kind of extra actors. So for example, we go to a lot of rural GP clinics um, and, you know, by instead of just having a, a, a GP come in at that inopportune moment during a critical intervention and asking questions, that 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 kind of we know that happens for in real life, so it's not completely out there. Um, and so there's that simple intervention, you, and you can see that the clinician is um, getting more and more um, overloaded cognitively. Uh, even just the mere phone of having an iPhone or a phone recording them. That's a common thing that we use and a simple thing that happens in day-to-day life. Um, and we, we, you know, it's probably the first time they've experienced that. And, and afterwards we kind of unpack that and use strategy and give them strategies to kind of um, manage that. And then it goes through to simple things like one of our scenarios is we'll, we'll say, right, you're being tasked to a four-year-old hit by a car. And so we asked them, you know, what are you thinking on route to the job? Any bits of other extra bits of equipment? You know, what are your thought processes within the team? And they get to the job and it's a four month old. And over the rate, you know, it's just comms issue. And so then they suddenly have to switch tack to like now I'm doing with a four month old. Um, and just that mere switching of the communication will, will really overload them to some degree. You know, a, a lot of our jobs in pre-hospital care is um, critical decision making, right? Um, and when you have the opportunity in a case review or D&D to go through that, um, I changed tack in the way that I run some of those reviews. So I used to just have the case up on the screen, the team's there and say, right, what do you do? You did this, this, this. And now on some of the cases, I anonymize it. So, right, and I pick a pick a registrar in the group and I pick a registrar primarily because we've learned that if I ask a consultant first what they're going to do on this case so you know you're the team this is the this is what you get activated to or sent to what are your thought processes what are you thinking um okay I'm thinking this and this and this and I'll do this and this and this and then if I ask the reg afterwards they will probably don't feel that they could say oh I wasn't thinking that I would have done this and this this so I started asking the registrar first and the paramedic or the nurse in their kind of in their fake team for the scenario for the for the case right what are you thinking right and then I'd ask the consultant because actually you know I know that in that rural facility they don't have x y and z or I know that there's a local doctor that can help you with that that. oh okay and that so that that immediately have that kind of high mindset of learning in a in a in that environment is really useful for someone who's not done the job before is new to the service um so i think it's using your your experience within the service and how you get the most out of that for the learning to, to be able to teach your new um 
uh, new staff about what you're thinking, the heuristics, local knowledge, corporate knowledge, um, uh, and being able to to learn to do that on a weekly basis is is really useful because it's something that we didn't really have in our in the kind of in hospital setting. Okay, that's it for this week. Uh, please do join us next week for five more of the most uh, downloaded episodes of the year. I've learned a lot this year from these guests, uh, and they've given generously given me their time. Uh, for free and it's been fantastic just to engage with them so i hope you've enjoyed uh please do join us again next week for the for the final five and i hope you have a great new year's you're listening to the pre-hospital care podcast on the medics academy network